He's following you, about 30 feet back. He gets down on all fours and breaks into a sprint. He's gaining on you. Shia LaBeouf. Welcome to Tell Me About Your Father. I'm Erin Hosier. And I'm Elizabeth Thompson. Today's show is looking at familial curses, busy, mm. generational trauma, and the rules of inheritance as they relate to addiction, abuse, and American men in power. Instead of rehashing all the Sopranos, <laughs> we are looking at two actors in the news right now, Shia LaBeouf and Army Hammer attempting to come back from multiple credible accusations of sexual assault and battery, abuse, and violent behavior. Neither have been charged with crimes this year. Shia's been charged with several in the past. Those civil suits are pending for Shia and a new documentary series on Discovery Plus, which we watched so you don't have to, called House of Hammer, takes a look at the dark and disturbing side of Army's family going back four generations. Both men are attempting to rehabilitate their lives and careers, which we've noticed have included well-placed comeback narratives since their alleged crimes were revealed only one and a half years ago. Both are fathers themselves at age 36. What separates these two actors is where they came from in life. Shia had humble beginnings as the son of a rodeo clown and sex offender, while Army's sex offender relatives are some of the wealthiest in the world. Mm. In this episode, we want to look at how the nature versus nurture debate plays out when it comes to grown men who abuse their power, seem to have a special contempt for the women in their lives, and often follow similar paths of chaos as their fathers they hold in high esteem. And we want to know why it's different for Hollywood men behaving badly in public than it is for women whose careers tend to fall apart over an addiction, but also when they've just been victims of the crimes perpetrated by the men who so often get pass after pass after pass. Why do we, as a society, have a tendency to race to forgive men and fathers their trespasses, even as they continue to trespass against us? Elizabeth, we've been having this conversation for years, mm -hmm. usually on daddy issues. But now we're dedicating a whole episode <laughs> to Shia and Army. Yeah, we really are. I mean, should we start with Shia? Let's start with Shia. We'll start with Shia because this really sort of came about over our love for the movie Honey Boy, which Shia wrote. It's an autobiographical story of him as a child actor with an abusive father. And in real life, his father, although he reveals now that he no longer thinks that his father was an abuser. His father is a registered sex offender mm -hmm. and was allegedly violent to Shia when he was a boy and also was a bit of a stage dad. But Shia plays his father in the movie that he wrote. He does. And it's incredible. An incredible performance. It is. And I remember talking to my therapist at the time about it, and she was like, anyone who would want 
to play their abuser father in a movie is not well. Like she wasn't saying it wasn't a good movie or wasn't possibly helpful for people who have experienced similar abuse because he was on a big press tour at the time about it. And she was like, I think it's a great movie, but think about how fucked up you have to be to do that. That stuck with me. Um, A shout out to my former therapist, but it's interesting because you and I both loved Honey Boy, and it like yeah. I was really struck. I I went back and reread the New York Times review of Honey Boy, which was sort of dismissive. There's a quote in it that I thought, or a paragraph in it that I thought was sort of mean that says, one would watch Honey Boy musing that it must have been nice to have someone finance a movie about your 12-step qualification. So a qualification Mm. for people who are unfamiliar with the recovery world is when you get up in front of a meeting and you talk for 15 minutes or 20 minutes about your, quote, experience, strength, and hope to use AA language or Al-Anon language. So meaning what brought you into the meetings and how you've recovered in the meetings. Um, Right. That's mean. And then here comes the next sentence. That assessment is actually too generous. To share one's experience, strength, and hope, as Alcoholics Anonymous puts it, is meant ostensibly to help others. This is not the aim here. Honey Boy is a flex, an assertion of the clout LaBeouf claims and in interviews to no longer have. We're going to come back to this later. Mm-hmm. So the LaBeouf family, to just break it down very quickly, Shia is an only child. His mother was an artist. She died in 2022 of heart failure. Dad is a Vietnam vet. <laughs> aforementioned clown. He was a biker and has tried to make a living as a poet and is also a self-described weed dealer. Shia LaBeouf has said in interviews that his dad was a drug addict and drug user. Dad has a rap sheet. A lot of it is is drugs and there is a, a sex offense. Shia LaBeouf grew up extremely poor and on food stamps. He spent a lot of time with just his mom He also has said that his dad, when he was sober, would take him to AA meetings with him. And he told the OC Register in 2007, which was when his acting career was getting big, that his dad held a gun to his head during a Vietnam PTSD flashback when he was a little boy, that he was mentally and physically abusive to him. He started doing stand-up at the age of 10, which is a plot point in Honey Boy, thought that that would help him make money for his parents. And that was true. He was pretty good at it. This launches his career. He gets cast in a movie called Holes, which is like a YA. It's written by um, the author Lewis Sacker, who wrote the Wayside School books. Nice. Yeah. Kids author. He references a story. I think it's in the same OC register piece about like seeing a kid at an audition that had re- like nice shoes and stuff. And the kid was like, yeah, it's acting. Just just act. And I, of course, flashback to like watching an E! True Hollywood story about Lindsay Lohan or someone of that sense that always stuck with me where maybe it was something about Corey Haim, one of the Corys, but one of the was somewhere in the back of my head where like actual usable information should be is some quote (laughs) from a psychologist, but it stuck with me, which is that child stars 
there's this this history of them being fucked up and struggling as adults because you cannot put pressure like that on a little kid. You can't mm-hmm. have a six-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 13-year-old aware that if they don't get a role, their parents are going to be on food stamps. Like, it doesn't work. Cut to a laundry list of issues <laughs> that Shia has had throughout his life, right? He started getting arrested at age nine for shoplifting. So was arrested for shoplifting shoes. And then again at age 11 for shoplifting a Game Boy. And this has led to an arrest record of 11 different incidences. And then they progress as he gets older, right? So It's stuff like being really drunk at a Walgreens in Chicago and refusing to leave to scary things like attempting to stab a neighbor in Van Nuys. And then the more famous incident around 2014, where he went to a live production of Cabaret starring uh, Michelle Williams and Alan Cummings in the former (laughs) Studio 54 space. Shia was smoking Mm -hmm. cigarettes and repeatedly told to put them out, smoking inside during the show, standing up and yelling at the cast, and then handcuffed and led away at the intermission. He was reportedly seen crying outside of the theater afterwards. And this is sort of the beginning of the beginning for Shia. In 2014, he also (laughs) starts talking about being a performance artist He's trying to be Mm. a filmmaker. He directs a movie. I completely forgot about this. He directs. This was like his James Franco period. Or maybe James Franco was having a Shia LaBeouf period. I think it was the other way around. He's suddenly a director. And he's really, really famous. And he's like, exactly. He directs a movie called HowardCantor.com about a film critic that's sort of losing it. And it stars Jim Gaffigan as an online film critic (laughs) named Howard Cantor. That's surprising casting. Right? So weird. Yeah. He releases it on Vimeo. (laughs) He also screens this at Cannes, Con, Cannes, and people are like, oh, it's actually really good. But no one bothers to you know, writes at length enough about it where it flags anything for anybody until it finally comes out on Vimeo in 2014. And suddenly it becomes very clear to the world, including the author of the graphic novelist Daniel Close, who wrote Ghost World and Art School Confidential, that HowardCantor.com is a direct word-for-word plagiarization of (gasps) his comic that he wrote in 2007 called Justin M. Damiano. What? Some of the language is word-for-word. So this happens... Daniel closes like, what the fuck? (laughs) Like, all of this comes out, and Shia LaBeouf then goes on this public apology tour. And then, with the help of probably some artists who were like, turn this into a performance, he starts skywriting over and hires a skywriter over LA to write, I am sorry. Then he appears at the Berlin Film Festival with a paper bag on his head with, I am sorry written on it. And, you know, Again, he has been surrounded by people who are like, turn your apology into performance art. Make this about our need to condemn. And you still see celebrities trying to do this, aka Kanye West and other unwell people. Yeah. But Shia apologizes to 
Daniel Close, it's really embarrassing. He says that in his excitement, he neglected to properly credit his work. I'm only bringing this up, this is a long aside, to paint a picture of someone who's had a really hard time, I think, and I'm going to have some sympathy for him. I don't think that this part is his fault. I don't think his personality is developed because he started acting at such a young age but it's a long history of stealing the work, the thoughts, the words of other people because he probably didn't know how to feel or be. Mm. And so I completely forgot that around the 2014 plagiarization stuff, that then he also was in a play with Alec Baldwin. Do you remember this? <gasps> no. Time Magazine, actually, it's still live on their website in 2014 has a really funny piece called A Brief History of Shia LaBeouf Copying the Work of Others. So this is around this time. He abruptly quits what would have been his first Broadway show, Orphans, due to creative differences with, drumroll please, Alec Baldwin, LOL. So he leaves the production. I mean, it's not surprising that someone wouldn't get along with Alec Baldwin, right? But like for you to be the one that has to publicly apologize to Alec Baldwin, you know it was cuckoo fucking crazy behavior. Insane. Insane. Totally. So he, at the time, Shia LaBeouf is very active on Twitter and tweets a screen grab of an email (sighs) that's him apologizing to Alec Baldwin and the producers and directors of this play that he left. And in it, he talks at length about all of the things that a man is. And he opens this email. My dad was a drug dealer. He was a shit human, but he was a man. And he taught me how to be a man. What I know of men, Alec is, and then a dash. And then there's this whole list of like really pithy, a man is good at his job, period. Not his work, not his avocation, not his hobby, not his career, his job. A man can look you up and down and figure some things out. Before you say a word, he makes you. From your suitcase, from your watch, from your posture, a man infers. So it's going to, you know, on and on and on. A man knows his tools and how to use them. Just Incredible. the one he needs knows which saws for what and how to find the stud. A man can tell you when he was wrong, that he did wrong, and that he planned to. And then the last sentence is, a man can tell you when he is lost, he can apologize, even if sometimes it's just to put an end to the bickering. Alec, I'm sorry for my part of a disagreeable situation. Shia. So it's revealed that this whole (laughs) what is a man who is a man is plagiarized from a 2009 Esquire article titled What is a Man? (laughs) Oh my God. He should have just done like a Robert Bly poem or something and beaten his chest. A lot of people, including the author of the Esquire, What is a Man piece, are like, what the fuck? I'm now just going off of this Time.com plagiarism Shia LaBeouf scandal timeline. To rationalize the plagiarism, LaBeouf lifted another quote from David Mamet. Oh, Jesus. Alec Baldwin's response to him, which I actually thought was quite magnanimous about how he gets it Mm. and no hard feelings. Wow. The plagiarizing stuff, to me, actually... Uh, out of everything with him made me be like, this is because he's a frozen 10-year-old stand-up comedian. So of course he did that in his 20s. 
And then it starts getting darker and darker as his drinking and drug use. He's in and out of rehab at this time. In 2017, he's arrested in Savannah, Georgia, where he goes on a racist rant against the black police officer who arrests him. This is all captured on body cam footage from the police. He tells the African-American police officer who arrests him that he's going to go to hell because he's black. That arrest, I think, is the impetus for some of Honey Boy, or at least the beginning of Honey Boy. Shows this actor who's at the top of his game getting wasted and arrested. Right. Because in real life, he goes to rehab for a long time. That's right. Is it even the first time, though? Because he has been several times or at least he says so he's been several times i think he's been in and out of rehab for various reasons since he started getting really famous because if you're a celebrity or even just in hollywood where someone has invested in you a team Mm -hmm. if you want to stay out of jail you need to go to rehab that's right so it's not even a choice it's like you can go to jail or you can get involved in the he said, she said shit or whatever. Yeah. But if you want to work again, you need to go to rehab. So they sent him to rehab. Yep. And I believe that's where he wrote his script for Honey Boy. Mm-hmm. Right. And Honey Boy, you know, as we know, is autobiographical. There's a lot in Honey Boy about this character, this actor who was a child star, who is now a big Hollywood guy, a big Hollywood guy, a big Hollywood star, goes to rehab <laughs> yeah. where a... The psychologist at the rehab, you know, after he's like, I'm fucked this and I'm not doing this and blah, 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 starts breaking through to him, getting him to realize that he actually has PTSD, encourages him to, if anyone listening to this has experienced, has PTSD or trauma, probably a lot of our listeners do. I've had therapists tell me to do this. You snap a rubber band against your skin to bring you back into life, into your body, so that you're not disassociating when you're afraid or triggered by stress or whatever. And Honey Boy, Mm -hmm. his rehab psychologist, tells him to name things in the room to bring himself back into his body. Then Honey Boy comes out, and Honey Boy seems to be this catharsis for him, hence the me opening with the New York Times review of self-indulgent maybe at the time that the critic for the New York Times was definitely hard on him but I cried during Honey Boy I saw it alone yeah me too (laughs) I saw it alone in like the middle of the day I just gotten laid off from my job and it did feel like an Al-Anon meeting Mm -hmm. but in a kind of a good way but in a good way and it felt really good which leads us to the post-Honey Boy Shia and his relationship with FKA Twigs, who he met making that movie. She's in the movie. She plays a hooker who befriends young Shia's character when he's, you know, trying to make it as a kid on a kid's TV show, not unlike the one that Shia got to start on. He and his dad are living in a seedy motel and this young boy in the movie befriends this hooker that's working out of the, the motel. So this leads us to FKA Twigs. Okay, so FKA Twigs, she's a musician and a dancer and an actor mm-hmm. from London. And this was one of her first appearances, if not the first appearance as an actor in a film. And apparently they were close friends and that developed, but... She describes their relationship when they started dating after the movie came out. 
there was a lot of intensity. It was the love bombing we mm. talk about. It was the, I'll die without you. No one understands me but you and vice versa. Like I've had that experience a few times in my life and boy, is it intoxicating in and mm -hmm. of itself. It's so exciting. And I think when you're young, in your 20s and 30s, maybe, you know, it's really hard not to fall for the shyas because there's not maybe a self that isn't angry. When that angry man boy is able to channel empathy, in this case for his father, by playing you know, his enraged and abusive father, it shows a great deal of humanity, like trying to understand exactly. the person exactly. that you, and so it's like, oh, I'm going to extend that same generosity of spirit that I've just seen my boyfriend do for his own father for him, you know, mm -hmm. like, yes, he's challenging. Yes, he has this past, you know, the question always comes up, well, she should have known what she was getting into. Like, look at his rap sheet since he was nine. Mm -hmm. Well, sure, he was nine, but now he's 34 and shit is different. And he's self-aware and therapized and maybe even sober, mm -hmm. right? Okay, so they're in a relationship for about a year. And then she breaks it off. And a year later, in December 2020, she files a lawsuit accusing him of sexual battery and assault and scary outbursts and controlling behavior, things that other women who've dated him have since come forward or just knew him hmm. have since come forward and said he was very controlling and very emotionally abusive and coercive and angry. And by the way, he admits he's never been faithful. He's always cheated as a rule. He apparently knowingly gave FKA Twigs an STI and perhaps many other people. So just bad things. She did not go to the police, she says, because she didn't want to ruin his career or her career. She wanted to get him to stop the behavior and to make amends. Twig says in the New York Times, I'd like to be able to raise awareness on the tactics that abusers use to control you and take away your agency. What I went through with Shia was the worst thing I've ever been through in my whole life. I don't think people would ever think it would happen to me, but I think that's the thing. It can happen to anybody. So in response... Shia says, I'm not in any position to tell anyone how my behavior made them feel. He told the Times, I have no excuses for my alcoholism or aggression, only rationalizations. I have been abusive to myself and everyone around me for years. I have a history of hurting the people closest to me. I'm ashamed of that history and I'm sorry to those I hurt. There is nothing else I could really say. And after that, a number of people came out in support of FKA Twigs, notably the 
director of Honey Boy. I don't love that he said to myself because it's like I know it's true. Of course, it's true. Of course, he's been abusive to himself because so much of this is about hating himself. I guess I say that as someone that I understand that so much of acting out and it's not an excuse, of course, is about hating yourself and self-destruction. And I remember when he released that statement, I thought he should have deleted that. Just that part, I have been abusive to myself. Because it, it inserts him into it in a way that says, feel sorry for me. And it's not yeah. about him. Yeah. He's leading with himself. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about this post-rehab this time podcast that he did called The Real Ones in a bit. But I can tell you, he still uses phrasing like, before this happened to me, things happening to him. Mm-hmm especially now that he's a 36-year-old grown-ass man. I just thought that was interesting. So Honey Boy director Alma Harrell, who collaborated closely with LaBeouf in telling his childhood story, also issued a statement supporting FKA Twigs, quote, like many of Shia's collaborators and fans who battled substance abuse, suffered childhood trauma, and faced mental illness, I am painfully aware of my past investment in his recovery. I want to send a clear message today that none of the above should excuse, minimize, or rationalize domestic violence. Mm -hmm. So, cut to Shia drops out of a movie called Don't Worry, Darling. (laughs) Never heard of it. What? (laughs) Never heard of it. Tell me about it. Who's in it? Directed by Olivia Wilde. (gasps) And... (laughs) Miss Pew, Miss Flo, <laughs> Miss Flo Pew, Flo Pew, Miss Flo, Big Flo, and famously Harry Styles, the biggest pop star yeah. in the world, replaced Shia LaBeouf. And at the time of the casting, when production was getting going, again, this is during the pandemic, so we all sort of had front row seats to this constant barrage of updates updates what's happening with don't worry darling mm-hmm. harry styles replaced shia labeouf who turns out florence Pugh said made her feel so uncomfortable that she didn't want to rehearse with him and right. olivia wilde releases a statement that's like the reason he got kicked off the movie is because i have a no assholes policy and because it's right. sort of so in tandem with the FKA Twig story, people are kind of like, good for Olivia Wilde. Like, he's probably such a fucking dick and a nightmare to work with. The story kind of goes away. Shia goes to rehab for the umpteenth time. And so this story starts picking back up when the Don't Worry Darling shit show media tour blitz was going on. And there's a big article about Olivia Wilde and Variety And as part of this profile of her, he releases a statement in which he finally acknowledges this story about him being kicked off the movie and reveals that Olivia Wilde really fought for him to be on the movie. And it wasn't this feminist choice to like, no assholes on my set, bye, that it was more complicated than that. Time's up. Tell the people (laughs) at home what really happened. This is late August, the very beginning when 
Don't Worry Darling is in the news. There's all these rumors floating around about tension on set with Olivia, blah, blah, blah. Shia, who should be, again, he's had a child. He's married now. Two years have gone by. He's about to make his comeback in terms of like, he's got this film coming out in a couple months at the Venice Film Festival. He doesn't have to participate. He causes this. He causes this big stink by sending an email to Olivia Wilde and then leaking it himself to Variety. Okay. Okay. So here's the first Mm -hmm. few lines of this, like literally seven paragraph letter. Olivia, I hope this finds you inspired, purposeful, fulfilled, and well. I pray every night that you and your family have health, happiness, and everything God would give me. No joke, every night before I sleep. I have a little girl, Isabel. She is five months old and just beginning to develop the last half of her laugh. It's amazing. Mia, my wife and I have found each other again and are journeying toward a healthy family with love and mutual respect. I write to you now with 627 days of sobriety and a moral compass that never existed before my great humbling that was the last year and a quarter of my life. I reached out to you a few months ago to make amends, and I still pray one day you can find space in your heart to forgive me for the failed collaboration we shared. What inspired this email today is your latest variety story. I am both a little confused about the narrative that I was fired, however. You and I both know the reasons for my exit. I quit your film because your actors and I couldn't find time to rehearse. I have included as a reminder the screenshots of our text exchanged on that day. So, okay, you can see where this is going. Screenshots are involved. She had a piece in Variety. Now he's got a piece in Variety. So he's able to discount everything Uh that uh she said Mm -hmm. and proving that he did it privately before she upped the ante by trying to shame him publicly in his mind. He mentions Twigs by name in the very next paragraph. We won't read the whole thing, but he does say, my failings with Twigs are fundamental and real, but they are not the narrative that has been presented. There's a time and a place to deal with such things, and I am trying to navigate a nuanced situation with respect for her and the truth, hence my silence. But this situation with your film and my quote-unquote firing will never have a court date with which to deal with the facts. If lies are repeated enough in the public, they become truth. And so... It makes it much harder for me to crawl out of the hole I have dug with my behaviors to be able to provide for my family. Firing me never took place, Olivia. He fully understands the attractiveness of pushing that story because of the current social landscape and the social currency it brings, but it is not the truth. So I am humbly asking as a person with an eye toward making things right that you correct the narrative as best you can. Wow. I know that you are beginning your press run for Don't Worry Darling and that the news of my firing is attractive clickbait as I am still persona non grata and may remain as such for the rest of my life. But speaking of my daughter, 
I often think about the news articles she will read when she is literate. And though I owe and will owe for the rest of my life, I only owe for my actions. Okay. But Mm -hmm. like (laughs) getting fired from a movie versus quitting in 2020 or whatever it was, is the thing that you're worried about your daughter reading about one day of all of the shit that you've of done all shit, of all the shit you've done and all of the shame the ocean of shame that you swim in yeah you know this all leads us to this podcast that he went on called real ones hosted yeah. by the actor john bernthal this podcast is a tour de force in just like real people real survivors real rider dies real dogs um yeah and you know it's like real bros intro's hilarious <laughs> it like shows him getting out of like a huge pickup with his dog and he's wearing a trucker cap and they're sitting outside and and shia and this two hour long redemptive so to speak post rehab i'm now married to mia goth father of a little girl interview there's a 20 minute clip if you want to give it 20 minutes um, and then there's the two hours. He's doing his bro routine, dog. He's yep. shy, a bro. Yeah. And he's talking to John Bernthal, who's also bro man. And John Bernthal is a really interesting actor. He's on an Ooh. HBO prequel to The Wire called We Own This City. That's I think he'll probably win an yeah. Emmy for. It's really good. He's great. Really? Um, I think that he's done jail time. He himself has struggled in his life. But when we talk about the attractive narrative, when we talk about Shia, I really wanted to watch this, listen to it and be like, what a dumbass. And he is a dumbass and he's very make fun of a bull. He is at times seemingly manic in this interview. He breaks down in tears. He's also my father <laughs> center of yeah, like, yeah. he is right. a, he, a little boy the scared little boy he says right. a lot of incredible stuff in this interview and i wanted to be dismissive of the concept of this interview because i don't think that he should be speaking publicly at all right now we don't need to be mm-hmm. hearing from him and we don't need to be hearing from him for two hours He gets real mixed up around the concept of humility. And Mm -hmm. if John Bernthal is an AA, which I'm guessing he is based on how he speaks, I wish that someone had stepped in and been like, if you're going to do this, it's a 30 minute interview and that's it. It's like a check in with Shia LaBeouf or something. But no one wants that. And he probably talked for like four hours and they got two hours edited down. He has a lot to say. I think this is an interesting episode for us because he is, I think, a good example of someone who comes from addiction. And this is like one of the hardest things for people to wrap their head around in Al-Anon, which is a program I'm in, which is for the friends and family of alcoholics, that families can operate alcoholically, which to operate alcoholically means that you don't talk about anything. You don't have emotions because the people who are modeling emotions, a.k.a. the parents, are usually drunk or in denial that someone in the family is drunk. The fallout, the effects of alcoholism sort of wash over the family. And he is an alcoholic with a capital A. He is all over the place in this interview. He's a seesaw 
one second he's yeah. egoless, he's experienced ego death. Before he got sober, it was always, you know, women were the ones that were saving him. He mm-hmm. was overly focused on relationships. This is a hallmark of alcoholism. I have experienced this. You lose yourself. As long as someone likes you, that's amazing. Right. And then the next second, it's crying about how much he loves his wife and how she saved his life. She saved my fucking life, dog. Like, it, uh, before the kid, before the job, before fucking, before God, before any religion, before any, before a laugh, before a laugh, before a laugh, before Bo, before a phone, before anything, was this woman's face. He had too many overly kind therapists let him off the hook and let him tell the story of his childhood trauma. And that gave him too much wiggle room. And he needed to really look at the fact that he was fucking up and seeking out relationships where he could be abusive and be in an abusive cycle. I always had an inch left. I always had some fucking wiggle room. Mm-hmm. Every time I would fuck up, there was always some wiggle. There was always a Brad Pitt on the phone. There was always some like, you know, Sundance award. Some next project. There was always next- Alma. There was always another, there was always wiggle room to get back into ego. He is mm-hmm. saying all of this about getting real, you know, accepting God, like the real fucking shit, like dog this and dog that and bro this and bro that next to strategically placed giant Starbucks coffee cups. It's like, what are- Really? Yes. What are, like, but what are we doing here? What are we doing here, John Bernthal? And what are we doing, Shia LaBeouf, that you, you are at this point, the most recovered you claim to have been in your life. And you're sitting here next to a, this is Spawn. Like Starbucks gave my, I guarantee you that they gave money to make this video because of the prominent placement of these coffee cups. It is so obvious. I'll tell you why. Because Starbucks and coffee is the official drink of rehabilitated champions. That's very true. That's why. Good point. Good point. I just wanted to point that out. It's like we're, we're doing, as I open my LaCroix, we, the other, <laughs> the other patron saint of sobriety, seltzer, and this innocent <laughs> exclamation point. It just, the fact that you would have a podcast about real, real life with product placement from Starbucks is hilarious. The first thing that you notice besides his like total mania, the way that he speaks is just like, It's like everything I've ever said before right now has been total lies and total bullshit. (laughs) Not that I didn't believe it myself, Mm -hmm. you know, but like, but, but I just didn't know, man. Now I know. Now I never, it was never leading from a place of love before, man, (laughs) but now I am. Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, he says this phrase so much, like, man, being with me is just, it's not sexy, man. It's not sexy. He uses these words over and over that are just super douchebaggy. Sexy, sexy, sexy. There's nothing sexy about what I'm dealing with. And that's what makes me useful. So there's that. And basically, he doesn't seem like an adult to me. No, he seems like a very fragile 20-year-old. And that just made me feel like 
Yeah, like what you were saying, like he has no self, you know, like it, how could he? he just is pure actor. You're right. How could he? And so when he sounds like an AA meeting on steroids, talk about qualifying every single thing that he says in this podcast, it's AA speak. And that's OK. Mm-hmm. You know, I get it. But I wouldn't have given this interview at this time. No. Until I had some more time of sobriety, number one. I mean, the way in which he embraces Catholicism at the expense of other forms of therapy or even just spirituality. Let's start there. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's normal to take up yoga. It's normal to start meditating mm-hmm. because that's part of centering. You don't go to the most horrific <laughs> religion on earth, Catholicism. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole other, that's a whole other trend and a whole other article and the rise of like trad Catholic and traditional Catholicism is like the cool thing. It's true. Well, Catholicism comes back around. So there's his newfound, you know, faith in God. Notably, he calls himself a liar. Mm -hmm. He calls himself a liar about his father. And so he he totally says that Honey Boy was a pack of lies, which maybe, you know, the written part was now that we know he's a plagiarist. But he takes great pains to say, like, my dad spanked me once Mm -hmm. to get me to stop smoking cigarettes. Mm -hmm. That's not discipline. That's love. Yeah. Honey Boy is basically like a big woe is me story about how fuck my father is. And I wronged him. And I remember getting on the phone with him and him, him being like, you know, I never read this stuff in the script you sent, you know, because <laughs> I, <laughs> I didn't put that shit in there, you know. And I was, I was bullshitting him. I was, you know, just trying to get him to sign this fucking piece of paper. Mm. He thought I was going to tell the story like Braveheart, you know, I was going to. And I didn't. I didn't. And I turned the knob up on certain shit that wasn't real. My dad never hit me. Never. He spanked me once. One time. And the story that gets painted in Honey Boy is like, this dude was like abusing his kid all the time. You know, my dad tried to keep me from smoking cigarettes. That's when he spanked me. He found me smoking cigarettes in the shower. He pulled me out. He spanked me. That's when he spanked me. But that wasn't my narrative. Mm -hmm. Because it didn't position me as like this wounded, fractured child that you could root for. Which is what I was using him for. So, as much as we loved Honey Boy, Shia in this interview says... That was the point. I wanted you to love it. I wanted you to see me as a wounded Al-Anon prince. And really, I made up a lot of Honey Boy just to write a more interesting screenplay. My dad really wasn't that abusive. This discounts the OC register quote he gave about his dad holding a gun to his head in 2007, but whatever, Um, that his dad never hit him, which is something that happens in Honey Boy. So that was, I mean, that was really surprising. It was surprising. And I was angry with Shia when he revealed that. And I appreciated that John Bernthal is like, yeah, but. I think that movie must have helped a lot of people too. Yeah. You're saying a lot of it was exaggerating, but it's still a really powerful movie. And he's like, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. But then 
it gets even sadder. He starts talking about the fact that his dad, when he called to make an amends for exaggerating the movie, that his dad mm-hmm. was like, you know, Shia's like, what can I do for you? How can I be of service to you? Which is a big, he talks about this over and over again, big recovery concept is that that's how you show people love by being of service to them. And he's like, well, actually, can you help me fly home back to LA? I'm living on a cocaine farm in Nicaragua or in Costa Rica right now. And Shia yeah. says, yeah, no problem and picks him up. And even though he's sober, make sure that he has a huge joint waiting for his dad to right. hit his as soon as he hits his pothead dad. And his dad takes a huge you know, hit off of it and starts coughing and is like coughing up blood. Shia sees that he's really sick. He takes him to a doctor. The doctor is like, you are going to die if you keep smoking. You're very sick. And his dad turns to him and is like, I want to get sober. And so yeah. he reveals in this interview that his dad is now many months sober. And I was moved by that because Shia seems to be very proud. But, you know, I just spent for us to prepare for this, to talk about Shia for two hours ourselves. We listened to Shia for two hours Mm -hmm. and I listened to him a few clips over and over again. And, you know, there's so much shame. There's so much Mm -hmm. um, self-hatred. And so here's his dad. His dad is named Jeffrey talking to an interviewer about Honey Boy right after Honey Boy came out. And his dad says in that interview, "Ah, not a lot of it's true. You know, that script's like pretty, the version that I got, he he backs up the Shia, tells John Bernthal that the script that he gave his dad was different than the one that actually was made, that was made, that that he manipulated his dad into agreeing to let him make this movie. His dad sort of suggests (laughs) this breezily in this interview, but says he's really, you know, I saw a different version of the script, but I'm really proud of him. And then he says that he recognizes the same darkness and violence in his son that he struggles with and how hard that is for him. And the interviewer pivots to say, you've done some prison time. We should maybe give a trigger warning. Fast forward by like 30 seconds if you don't want to hear someone talk about rape or rape. Well, it's yeah, it's 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 Jeffrey confessing to it's Jeffrey confessing. But if you don't want to hear that because he's going to give details that I'm going to read, just hit fast forward 30 seconds. I went to Mm -hmm. the joint for attempted rape. This was in 1980. Whatever I was doing, I have no clue. I was blackout drunk. I'd done cocaine and also alcohol. I'm six foot three. This person was five foot two and 29 years old. It hurt my heart to see her in the courtroom. I was appalled. I have no clue why I was in that car, whether I was carjacking the car or what. I have no rape in my history, so I don't know, but I was appalled. I was overwhelmed with emotion, and I just said, Your Honor, I plead no contest. And the judge said, Okay, three years for attempted rape. So his dad served three years for attempted rape. His dad doesn't remember any of it. He doesn't know if he was trying to carjack someone or not. What year did he give that interview? He gave that interview in 2019, in November of 2019, which is when Honey Boy came out. Wow. I know, girl. Okay. He talks about Brolin and Penn and Sean Penn and Mel, big Mel Gibson is referred to by first name as being someone who fell from grace. But when he saw him at the Oscars one year, he kept his head up. Mel Gibson, the worst of the worst, truly. We don't have time to do a deep dive on him. Rage issues, domestic violence, racism. Talk about a Catholic 
who is a Bad News Bears Catholic. A lot of overlap with Shia. Yeah. So much over. Shocking. Shocking <laughs> that the king of sober, uh, racist, fuckwad ex-husbands with a lot of children and a Nazi dad <laughs> might be mm-hmm. a role model for Shia LaBeouf. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's Big Sean. Sean Penn. Sean Penn, who, for people who might forget has a long track record of struggles with drinking and also domestic violence yes famously married to madonna in the 80s arrested for abuse in that situation including tying her to a chair and pistol whipping her there's not a lot of yes but or yes and coming from shia in any of his discussion of the men that he claims to model himself up in recovery or even of himself. Like John Bernthal in a couple of places really pushes him to talk about his behavior and what he did to Twigs. Yes. And he has a hard time doing it. She is never referred to by name in this interview. I don't know if that's for legal purposes. I Um, would guess. She is only referred to as, quote, that woman. Which, you know, brings up for me, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky stuff. It just, it slingshots me back to being a teenage girl watching that interview live and being like, he's lying. I knew it, like age 13 from listening to my dad lie that Bill Clinton was fucking lying when he said that. That woman in and of itself is so dehumanizing. And so again, I feel like they shouldn't... He shouldn't have done this interview. Yeah. At the very least, they do put a trigger warning or some resources up on the website with the podcast. And he does say, I've never hit a woman and I don't know what that feels like to hit, to hurt someone I love or claim to love. He does. And then he says, he says to him, if you did do this, there's no version of like our friendship where I'm like no hard feelings. Like that's fucked up. And Shia LaBeouf is like, yeah, I get that, you know, and he I don't want to say he's careful in how he talks about <laughs> about it. He alludes to and almost I will say the word admits at times that he hit her, that he, quote, put his yeah. hand that he put his hands on, quote, that woman. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons it. why he is accused of sexual battery is because he she accuses him of knowingly giving her herpes and putting right. makeup on his genitals to cover his scabs. But I think, mm-hmm. at least in the state of New York, definitely in California, knowingly giving someone an STD is a form of sexual battery. And in this interview, Shia tells John Bernthal, well, you know, yeah, before I was in recovery, I did get cold sores twice a year. I've always had that since I was a little kid. My mom passed this on to me. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Also, no judgments. So many fucking people have herpes. So many people walk around with herpes that manifest as cold sores on your face. Um, Sure. So he uses that language. It it doesn't. He does it. He addresses the makeup on the genitals at a a point where he starts crying about how he doesn't deserve the love that he's been accused of shooting a dog for a role. It's not sexy to be with me. Don't you get it? Like, people out here accusing me of, like, putting makeup on my genitals and, like, shooting dogs and shit. You know? That's what I'm being accused of. And you're showing up for me like you're you're going to be tied to this shit? Mm. I could, it didn't make no fucking sense. Mm. And love is irrational that way. It's all kind of sad. 
He seems to be very aware of how much he needs to evolve to be believable as a healed human who we should take seriously and believe will never do this again or have faith that he wants to never do this again. It's just not it's just not the look. I'm not going to make fun of him though for saying these things. It's a hard one. He's a tough mm-hmm. one for me because as I said at the beginning of this he is my dad. He is a fragile child. He refers to himself over and over again as a scared wounded little boy. He is obsessed with masculinity. He talks about masculinity constantly mm-hmm. throughout this 2-hour interview. It's like very othered. Mm-hmm. He talks about gender almost more than we do. He's obsessed with it. So are we. <laughs> but he really is. Mm-hmm. This part I will make fun of him for. Really weird moment where he talks about how mountains are really masculine. I'm developing like the ability to shut the fuck up and not do anything. You know, and it felt so emasculine to not do something. Mm-hmm. It feels mm-hmm. like emasculine to not do something. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, there's nothing more masculine than a mountain. Tell me why. You just don't do much, and yeah. it's always there. Yeah, yeah. And you can't move it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so, like, that's what complicated. I'm, <laughs> it's yeah, complicated. It's got all kinds of shit on yeah, it. But yeah, but it's also super simple. That's true, too. Yeah, I, I mean, not to get too, like, mm. uh, arty-farty with the shit, but mm. I like the stability of a mountain. Mm. I like the simplicity of a mountain. Mm. I like the complexity of a mountain. There's different notes, sure, mm. you know, mm. different elevations. He talks about living in the pause. That's an AA thing. It's an Al-Anon thing, which essentially means, do I need to be saying this right now? Does it need to be said, right. period? Does it need to be said right now? And does it need to be said by me? The right now is not a yes in this situation. <laughs> It's not a yes. He shouldn't like, we we don't need it right now. Maybe in 10 years, you know, he talks about it being accountable over and over again in this interview. You know, what would accountability look like there? Admitting that he did these things because he keeps kind of admitting it in this interview, you know, like he keeps kind, he dances up to it. And then it's like, she's that woman. Like there's just something always removed about it for him and I what accountability would look like from someone like Shia and why I don't I don't forgive him and I believe FKA twigs and you believe FKA twigs but to the purposes of this show he also has a daughter he has a little girl and Mm -hmm. as we talked about before we started recording she is very vulnerable and his wife, Mia Goth, who he has been twice separated from due mm-hmm. to his drinking and behavior, is very vulnerable. And so yeah. to use, we will pray with Shia, pray that you take yourself fucking seriously and that you continue to live a quote principled life. And maybe that means not acting for a while and not doing two hour podcasts. Right. So don't force us to do a two hour podcast just to yeah. talk about. How you need to shut the fuck up, sir. Now look at what's happened. We've had to devote two hours to telling you to shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Here's a clip, Shia, talking specifically about masculinity Mm. and his feelings about it and why he strictly goes to men's meetings, which is something we support. That's why I strictly go to men's meetings, bro. Because I wouldn't be able to talk to you like this with a woman around. I need to emasculate myself for the broader purpose of showing other... He doesn't say other dudes the way, but we'll find that quote. 
there's no puberty ceremony in our culture. In America, when do you become a man? When you get a driver's license? You become a man when you become responsible for other people. It's also why I go to strictly men's meetings. Because you don't hear about dudes talk about what we're talking about at a mixed meeting. Because very quickly, once women are involved, I probably wouldn't be able to talk like this with you if there was a woman here. Because right away, the the little boy in me would start like curating again. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And and when I'm here with you, I can forget about that also and all this shit. It takes a certain kind of dude to be able to open a person up like this mm -hmm. and be receptive of it. Mm -hmm. And also like show up and look the dragon in the eye knowing that there's purpose. Yeah. Like I'm purpose driven yes, here. Yes. I'm willing to eviscerate myself and emasculate myself yes. and like... Because I know that there's this grander purpose than like me trying to. One hundred percent. Yeah. So, so the reason I go to strictly men's meetings is because you get people do dudes get vulnerable about the ugly shit, the shit that dudes don't want to talk about. It's I, sad. I he had said, "I don't want to talk about those things in front of women because I'm embarrassed and I'm ashamed." But the fact that he takes it to emasculation turns it into a, a weird power gender thing that doesn't feel recovered coming from someone who is about to go on trial for sexual battery. And I, I get it totally. And let's talk about why we are pro women's meetings, men's meetings, queer meetings, that kind of thing. Well, we're pro them because of you have to talk about these things. And it is it is shitty. And I do, as someone who is a grateful member of Al-Anon, like it's hard to talk about sexual assault or being yeah. ghosted by a guy or eating disorders, wanting to have a baby, yeah. sitting in a room full of men, like, or in a room with, with many men in it or any man in it. Like I, I get that. And I also understand and sympathize with men that are like, I want to be able to talk about getting ghosted myself or being the ghoster. I want to talk about being molested. I want to talk about shitty things that I did to women when I was drunk you know, yeah. and not feel like I'm being judged by women in the room or that I'm worrying that I'm triggering people or whatever. It makes sense. Yeah. The same for, for queer meetings, the same for why there's recovery rooms for people who are of color. Like this is a very yep. important to feel safe and understood in the rooms. And be able to relate. Like Absolutely. you also would, you know, you would find other dudes that have hit their wives, for instance. Hit their wives drunk. Yeah, for sure. And let's hope that men talk about it. But one gets the sense that there's a difference between what we hope, you know, goes on in those rooms and what happened on this podcast. It really feels like bragging, dude. Like he, yeah, oh, yeah. It's it's just it, this podcast is going to go on two hours, but we're talking about two people. Um, <laughs> I want to stop on Padre Pio because okay. that's his comeback. He's bragging a little. He talks about the hero's journey. I mean, it's <laughs> it's so over the top. I'll stop. So LA, it's, it's so, so LA. like and all of this. You get through this podcast and you learn along the way that this Catholicism, I think, came up because of Shia's last movie. When he was in treatment or soon thereafter, Abel Ferrara, the 
illustrious director, mm-hmm. bad boy director of Bad Lieutenant. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a Catholic. Mm. And his latest film is called Padre Pio, was a Franciscan monk mm-hmm. of the 20th century. He was supposed to have stigmata when the blood like comes out of your hands. Mm-hmm. He had like, stigmata. And you spontaneously... He had stigmata and he became like the patron saint of like suffering. Uh-huh. And again, like he's like the patron saint of like dudes that have been in jail and stuff. Mm. Like he was a G. He was a G. He, he was a G. He fucking G- lived, bro. That means gangsta. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there's that. It felt a little bit when he talks about doing his research for the acting, he like hangs out with these these monks all day long and they just laugh <laughs> all the time <laughs> because they've given up. They've taken a vow of poverty. Abel Ferreira says he's bringing his own life to it. You are seeing a person. I don't know why I adopt this voice for every life. I like dude, it. But- You are seeing a person going through a very similar experience. It's not just about wearing robes and performing actions. When the actor is living a parallel type journey, that's when you get such a powerful performance. So here we have again, like this total reverence for Mm -hmm. like, you have to live it Mm -hmm. or else you can't act it, which is total bullshit. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to end with this segment Mm -hmm. with a quote from i chose her because she's a former nickelodeon executive turned therapist incredible in variety in response to this story of shia being in trouble in 2020 and also her name is jennifer musselman i love it but i like to say muscle man tell tell us muscle man Substance addiction does not come tied to sexual abuse or physical abuse. There are plenty of people in recovery who don't do those things. Those are often anger issues and trauma issues. When someone is suffering from a drug and alcohol issue, frequently it's a coping mechanism. In this case, I would guess these issues are tied to his traumatic childhood, including the way that he was supported, if you will, by the Hollywood industry to be dismissed of these behaviors. It is the behavior that we need to see moving forward consistently that should allow people to decide, producers, agents, managers, and networks, whether or not he should be allowed to show up and work, frankly. You see celebrities go away for six months and go to rehab, but often for the wrong reasons. To truly heal and develop the kind of character for someone who allegedly has this extent of violent behavior, they have to actually want to do the work and not just want to work again. Wow. We couldn't agree more. That's exactly what we were trying to say that's for the right. last hour. And that's what leads us into this desire to work again, to be in the public eye again, to quietly come back again. And to make money again. So what's next? So the trial is when? In April? Yeah, it's it's been scheduled for next April. Twigs really wanted a jury trial, so she forewent just facing a judge. She wants it to be public. I'm pretty positive that Shia's lawyer or lawyers 
really dissuaded him from giving this interview or any interview. He is trying to walk that line. He's not supposed to be admitting to giving other people herpes too. So all he can do is say, I look forward to, you know, giving my, my true facts next year when I'm allowed. But I don't, I don't think you can muzzle him. And I just hope that he, by next April, that he will have a more recovery or a good sponsor or that big Sean, Mel, Josh, or Brad Pitt, someone from his uh, squad can step in and be like, (laughs) not now. How about in 2030, you do an interview? While we're talking, as we transition into Army Hammer, you, Erin, dug up a song that references Shia LaBeouf being a cannibal. There's there's a whole story about this song. This, like, arty musician guy, Rob Cantor, Mm -hmm. in 2011, his friend was just, like, whispering in his ear dramatically the name Shia LaBeouf. And so that inspired him to come up with this character, caricature of Shia LaBeouf as a crazy cannibal that lives in the woods that's there to terrorize people and attack them and eat them in the night. It was in the midst of all of his constant legal trouble. So back then, you know, it would have been 10 years of legal trouble, Mm -hmm. Shia LaBeouf. Yeah. And it seemed kitschy. Now it's dark and you seem to have lost him, but you're hopelessly lost yourself. Stranded with a murderer, you creep silently through the underbrush. Aha! In the distance, a small cottage with a light on. Hope! You move stealthily toward it, but your leg! Ah! It's caught in a bear trap! Oh, hi there. This is Matthew Philp. When we started producing Tell Me About Your Father back in 2019, Erin and Elizabeth and I did a lot of research into the best podcasting programs. One program that we're happy to have found and still use is Anchor by Spotify. It's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Okay, now let's get back to whichever specific episode of Tell Me About Your Father you're currently listening to. Uh, Elizabeth, that was the song called Shia LaBeouf by Rob Cantor. I highly recommend you watch the video. He Loved appears it. in a in a live version. Anyway, listen, we have to repeat the trigger warning at the top of this episode. We're talking openly about sexual violence and cannibalism and serial killers, real and imagined. By the end of this episode, we're going to look at cannibalism and the fetish for cannibalism, the difference between those two things. Mm -hmm. Um, and look at these family dynamics in Army Hammer's life. So there's our trigger warning. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, Mm -hmm. and 
it's interesting that House of Hammer came out or that we're doing this now. I was reminded the other day in the news that Harvey Weinstein, Danny Masterson, and Kevin Spacey are all on trial this month. They're all facing sexual assault and misconduct allegations made Mm -hmm. in 2017. So these are finally coming to the fore. There are consequences, at least for Weinstein. Now he's about to face a cavalcade of charges in Los Angeles. He's also already been convicted in New York. Anyway, it's very timely that we're doing this. But another thing that I've noticed as we get into this Discovery Plus show, House of Hammer, which can feel a little or a lot corny when you're watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminded us that there have actually been a lot of documentaries and series lately that have really questioned the status quo and exposed patterns of abuse, abuse of power, Scientology and the aftermath with that actress Leah Ramini has had three seasons. Yeah. Surviving R. Kelly had two seasons on two different networks and eventually led to him finally, finally being convicted Mm -hmm. um, of multiple rapes of young women and girls and keeping them locked up. Mm -hmm. I recently slogged through 12 riveting but upsetting, traumatizing hours of Secrets of Playboy, which, you know, I know, I saw that that. It's so dark. But then there's also this Hulu documentary called Leave No Trace, which uncovered a century-long cover-up of institutionalized sexual abuse in the Boy Scouts of America. So none of these topics, we just don't talk about them as a society. It's all the things that made me want to become a member of the media or be around media when Mm -hmm. I was growing up because I was convinced that there are so many people. If you work in this industry, like we know these stories, we hear these stories sometimes Mm -hmm. firsthand about what's happening behind the scenes in Mm -hmm. politics, in pop culture, people having affairs, but also stories that Gawker, RIP, the old Gawker broke, like Jeff Epstein. Yep. We have really come a long way in just like what we're actually willing to look at. You made that good point, Erin. Like I was sort of rolling my eyes at House of Hammer, not because I thought the contents of it was incorrect or stupid. It just reminded me a lot of a <laughs> true Hollywood story. It's very, totally. it's very silly it's like, and it's, and it's a modern story. And, and so they have right. what would normally be a New York Times reporter or right. a correspondent for some prestigious show being like, and this is how we broke the story about da da da. It's some girl from TikTok being interviewed in a serious setting with a brick wall being like, here's what I found out about the Hammer family. It's all true, though. But to your point, listeners at home who haven't watched it or who have watched these and been like, oh, this is cheesily made, especially House of Hammer short, yes. But just because it's not an Alex Gibney documentary or whatever does not mean that this isn't progress. And you said that to me, and that's true. That just, that hit me like a hammer. (laughs) If we're going to talk about this like in a timeline way or a chronological way, 
the context of some of this episode is that this is all unfolding, the Shia LaBeouf stuff with FKA Twigs, but also the Arkhamer stuff during the pandemic. And it was also a strange time in that, you know, the world was ending. And so for any story to cut yes. through that, anything that cut through mass death at that point was pretty important. And so the Shia LaBeouf and FKA Twigs stuff happens. And I think it was really shocking to people. But then, <laughs> lo and behold, another story, as we enter the second year of the pandemic, really yep. shocks the world and captivates us all, particularly because of how strange it is and how titillating it is, is the story of Army Hammer, Ooh. a very, who cares, in my opinion, celebrity. <laughs> He is definitely celebrated. He's been in Call Me By Your Name at this point, talking about January 2020 when the story comes out, which is like a gay coming of age story where he plays an older man that has an affair with a teenage boy played by Timothy Chalamet. Right. He, prior to that, gets attention for playing the Winklevoss, Winklevie twins and <laughs> adaptation of the story of Facebook's creation called The Social Network. He's on a bunch of other stuff. Right. Don't forget the Lone Ranger opposite. How could I? How Good could job. I forget? But to your point about the Lone Ranger, he's a very like a leading man that then gets put in like the Lone Ranger movies and everyone's kind of like, okay. He's right. absolutely a star and a celebrity and a movie star, but he's not. But you, you couldn't pick him out of a lineup. And for that reason, he has a very pleasing, sort of Aryan, chiseled-looking yes. man. Like, he is a Ken doll. He's not even a Ryan or a Chris in Hollywood. We can't tell Thank the difference. You. you said that to me a couple of weeks ago over text, and I'm so glad that you just said it because <laughs> you say the best stuff on text, and I always say I'm going to read your texts on episodes. But he's that is the perfect description. He's not even a Ryan or a Chris. He is not a Ryan Gosling. He's not Chris <laughs> Mann or Chris Guy. He's just kind of around but very castable, hireable, and famous, given what we yeah. just said. So January 2021, the vaccines aren't available. It's still really scary. People are really are dying. Christmas is canceled. And, you know, January is also famously a sleepy, like, news cycle because people are sort of not around, including the journalists who break these stories. But lo and behold, Army Hammer, it comes out, has been... Outed as sending upsetting texts about cannibalism fantasies that are sort of in line with some BDSM play, but also a lot right. of experts since then and a lot of people at the time have said there's a difference between BDSM play and what he's doing. Right. And some of the allegations against him have even included rape and sexual assault. So Aaron, take us through the the January 2021 shit show, public, just insane, insane emphasis on public because he was documenting a lot of yeah. this himself on social media just crazy yeah. meltdown that we watched happen. So Army starts the year off right. <laughs> in okay. 2021. In 2020, he filed for divorce or his ex, soon-to-be ex-wife, Elizabeth Chambers, who he'd been with for 10 years. They had two children together, a daughter and a son. 
both really young. Um, mm-hmm. I think when when she files, they release a a very generic but you know loving and for a divorce announcement saying that they're devoted to their children and they're going to co-parent and they are still best friends. Mm-hmm. And then she's in the Cayman Islands. Army is from the Cayman Islands. He grew up there before moving to Los Angeles. So she's hiding out with the kids. And on January 1st, on New Year's Day last year, he writes this tweet mm. 2021 is going to kneel down before me and kiss my feet because this year I'm the boss. 2020 was a cheap shot. No one was expecting. Now I know what we are up against and it's time to go to war. Mm-hmm. An unwell tweet from an unwell person. <laughs> we, and little did we know how unwell. All of this is concurrent because you remember when, when there was all that footage of him drunk and high and taking pills and licking substances off of his yeah. his own hand mm-hmm. while driving yeah. in the yeah, desert. That comes out a little bit later. Yeah. On a social media meltdown, but it was as these allegations were coming. Mm-hmm. In January 2021, House of Effie, which is like this Instagram page that was created by someone we assume is the same Effie that comes out later with Gloria Allred and presents her case to the press. But at first it was an anonymous Instagram account. Yeah. Yeah. She leaked voicemails and direct messages saying that she had been with him for the last four years. Hey, it's Elizabeth. For the next two minutes, we're not only going to read from a text of Army Hammer talking about rape, but also describe his victim's experience. Just a trigger warning that that's coming up, and you should skip ahead two minutes if you don't want to hear that. Probably the the texts that struck us the most were raping you on your floor with a knife against you. Everything else seemed boring. You're crying and screaming, me standing over you. I felt like a god. The text read, I've never felt such power or intensity. Another alleged message, I'm not going to lie. You're crying and crawling away while I stalked you down your hallway was so exhilarating. So Effie says, I fell in love with him instantly. Looking back, it is now clear to me he was employing manipulation tactics in order to exert control over me until I started to lose myself. He would often test my devotion to him, slyly removing and crossing my boundaries as he became increasingly more violent. He abused me mentally, emotionally, and sexually. On April 24th, 2017, Army Hammer violently raped me for over four hours in Los Angeles, she told reporters, during which time he repeatedly slapped my head against a wall, bruising my face. He also committed other acts of violence against me to which I did not consent. Effie said that in addition to the alleged rape, Hammer beat her feet with a crop so they would hurt for the next week with every step she took. She says she tried to get away, but he wouldn't let me. I thought that he was going to kill me, she said. She added that the trauma suffered after the relationship with Hammer ended was so intense that she considered taking her own life. So when this came out, the LAPD started an investigation that 
ended nine months later with no charges being filed. But as soon as she opens the door, there are just floods of other women coming forward and mm-hmm. saying, this happened to me too. He responds when this first comes out. I'm not responding to these bullshit claims, but in light of the vicious and spurious online attacks against me, I cannot in good conscience now leave my children for four months to shoot a film in the Dominican Republic. Lionsgate is supporting me in this, and I'm grateful to them for that. So he pulled out of a movie with J-Lo, where he was supposed to star, called Shotgun Wedding. I mean, it's moving at the speed of light, right? So this story comes out, and you actually couldn't keep up with the story because there's these incredibly upsetting allegations and descriptions of rape and screenshots of conversations. And then the floodgates open, as they always do, where other women come forward, right? Yep. Courtney Yusekovich is somebody who was dating ARMY. They had like this really intense affair over six months. It just started in 2020 during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. His whole thing is that he comes on really strong and reaches out to strangers, like strange women, and just slides into their DMs. Mm -hmm. And immediately it's this barrage of... Compliments and dirty talk. And in Courtney's case, she's the person that's interviewed the most besides Casey. Yeah. In the documentary, Casey, Army's aunt, who tells the whole story of her family and who wrote the book. So we thought that we would read off some of Army's cannibal themed text messages. That's right. Or DMs. So 2016 to 2020 is when these alleged DMs or text messages were sent. We're going to start here. I am 100% a cannibal. I want to eat you. Hot. Mm-hmm. That's hot, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I need to eat your entire body. Kind of hot. Mm-hmm. I need to touch every part of you inside and out. I want to bite pieces off of you. I, I sort of say medium. Yeah, I would say hot. I'd say that's still <laughs> medium hot. It's medium hot. Okay, yeah. It's, it's, it's warm. Mm-hmm. And then you just live to obey and be my slave. I will own you. That's my soul, my brain, my spirit, my body. This, okay. this is where people who are on the BDSM train are like, oh, I'm on a totally different train. Sure. Okay. So would you come and be my property till you die? If I wanted to cut off one of your toes and keep it with me in my pocket so I always had a piece of you in my possession, question mark. Whoa. I'm going to say pass to having someone cut my toe off. Fair. And Fair. I'm going to say okay. pass. Okay. Go ahead. So- Arm yourself for this one from Army. Army also, this is context, allegedly boasted about how he had just shot a deer, cut its heart out, and ate it. Quote, (laughs) totally raw, still warm. I'd eat your heart if I wasn't stuck without you after. Oh, that has shades of Dahmer, which we'll get in later. So that sort of redirects the conversation and and kind of where the continued focus still is on him. Yeah. Around his desire to, quote, cannibalize women 
At the time, Twitter, I'll just say Twitter, struggling, as it always does, to unpack sexuality and sexual assault or Me Too stories. And in this case, it was, yes, but we can't kink shame people. There's such a thing as being into BDSM or into some of the things that he's into, including knives, including cutting, including hitting, including whatever, whatever, whatever. We can't paint him as a serial killer. And so this kind of conversation just like chugs and chugs and chugs and chugs along social media. But then you had a lot of people at the same time, especially BDSM experts and sex therapists saying, sure, there's such a world where you can do these things. You can talk about fantasizing, wanting to cannibalize your partner. If it's consensual, if it's something where structure put in place for it to be really considered BDSM play, this is not what this is. This is someone who is sort of like preying on hot women on Instagram and taking it to a place that feels really scary for them and people are just like glued to the story because it's fucking crazy and then all of these clips of him and there's there's pictures and there's screen grabs and it's the classic self-destructive arc like all of this is happening people are like what the fuck what is going on with this person he is very quiet for a couple of days like this all unfolds quickly but there's like at least a couple days of silence where you're like "Ooh, what's his team gonna say like what's the crisis situation I was very interested to see what happened. We were watching it from afar because he has two little kids and he's a dad. Yeah. I was really shocked. You were shocked. We talked about it on an episode of Daddy Issues. He pulled a Ted Cruz. This is why I really am leaving this movie with J-Lo, not because I've been accused of rape and sending unwanted messages about cannibalizing people. It's that my kids need me right now and I can't in good faith be, you know, away from them or put them in a situation where I would have to leave them for four months. It's totally sick to do that. Then you see the next couple of weeks, he just fucking loses it. He has a private Instagram account where he's posting photos of him drinking, videos of him drinking and driving, doing drugs, bragging about how he's being screened for drugs right now, which I'm assuming was in order to see his kids and that he, you know, was like posting about taking drug tests but like he knew how to like get around the parts where you test positive for weed just like classic acting out childish spiraling spiraling. and then the icing on the cake is he posts a video where he's at the Cayman Islands Ritz Carlton and he's doing a tour a phone tour where he's he's shooting a video in his room and he's like for his for fans. his fans for his <laughs> which like again like when someone clearly Who was taking these fans? private videos this is a private account and sending it straight to the media we'll talk about who that would have been later because it's since come out that his wife worked really closely his ex-wife excuse me worked really closely with the media to break this story wow he posts this video where he's like, and here's the bathroom and blah, blah, blah. And it's this very like boring tour. And then he pans without commenting across the room. And there's a woman on all fours and lingerie on the bed, like a yep. human table kind of situation. And that's it. It was horrifying to watch unfold because here's a father of two and a grown ass man who is essentially mm-hmm. being like, fuck you guys. I'm going to do what I want. Look how funny I am. Can't kick shame me, me, motherfucker. Can't drug test me. Like, see what, see how, like, seriously I'm taking this. Again, an actor putting this on camera 
And releasing it himself. And releasing it himself. And so eventually someone stepped in who, a lawyer, I'm assuming her divorce lawyers also said, it would be extremely wise of you to shut the fuck up right now. And he kind of has laid low, thankfully, since then. Yes. Okay. So his attorney at the time, Andrew Brettler, issued this response. The stories being perpetuated in the media are a misguided attempt to present a one-sided narrative with the goal of tarnishing Mr. Hammer's Mm. reputation. Mm -hmm. And communications from the individuals involved prove that. Brettler confirmed that Hammer had committed infidelities, but denied the more serious charges of sexual assault, saying that all of the sexual activities were, quote, completely consensual in that they were fully discussed, agreed upon, and mutually participatory. Which brings us to just a couple months ago or a month or so ago, there's a series on Discovery Plus called House of Hammer. Okay, so when this was happening, Mm -hmm. a bunch of TikTokers and the kids on social, as you know, people like us (laughs) started to do some deep dives. Mm -hmm. And you didn't have to look for long because it turns out that Army Hammer's aunt named Casey Hammer had self-published a book. I think it's called Surviving My Birthright. It's all about the five generations of the Hammer family were dark and scary and simply build on everything that Army Hammer is being accused of in a way that makes it seem, yeah. you know, totally plausible. Yeah. Surviving My Birthright, the authorized version. It came out in 2015. Obviously, no one knew about it. The reason why we're going into this at all is because Army Hammer is the great-grandson of Armand Mm. Hammer. Erin, take us through the family tree. Who is this family? Who is Armand Hammer? Why are they so rich? What's the deal? It's really creepy. Okay, so the family in the U.S. starts in the early 20th century. Army's great-great-grandfather, and this is where the, the series begins too, is named Julius Hammer. And he was this Russian immigrant physician who happened to be, he helped found the Communist Party in the U.S., He had a lot of dark dealings. He killed a woman giving her an abortion, or she died within a couple days of giving her an abortion, and he was actually imprisoned for manslaughter. He had a son, Armand, Mm -hmm. Army's namesake, his great-grandfather. That son, Armand, when he was 22, took over the business for his father while he was in prison called Allied Drug. So it was like this pharmaceutical business. Mm -hmm. Armand goes back to Russia, where his father was from, and lived there for 10 years and apparently like hobnobbed with Lenin and Stalin. (laughs) I mean, he (laughs) seems to have a lot of power. And then he just up and moves to Los Angeles. So you've heard the Hammer name, you know, the Hammer, the Hammer Museum, Museum in, LA. in LA. Yeah, the art museum. Oh my God. So Armand, 
he gets involved in Accidental Petroleum, which is like this failing oil company. And within a few years, he made a deal with oil dudes in the Middle East mm-hmm. who, I think it was like Gaddafi mm-hmm. or something. <laughs> it's like a but he like, like, cavalcade of like <laughs> monsters that he worked with. <laughs> so shady. Yeah. Like he was sort of known to be a con man, but so powerful. You didn't want to fuck mm-hmm. with him. He's been to several presidential inaugurations. He was friends with FDR. He was, there's footage of him talking to the Kennedys on the documentary. He attended Reagan's inauguration. Uh, George H.W. Bush pardoned him during his administration because he was one of the people that paid for the Watergate cover-up. Oh my God. King Charles III, at the time, Prince, Prince, Prince Charles, Charles yep. and Lady Di. Lots of footage mm-hmm. of them hanging out. Mm-hmm. He was known to record everything. Right, super like paranoid. He, everything was bugged. Yeah. All phones were tapped. One story that is in the doc that's kind of fascinating is that he was married a bunch of times. He had this mistress in the 70s, and instead of breaking it off, he wanted to keep his third wife. So he had this mistress in exchange for her like identity, basically. She changed her name. She wore wigs and had surgery and just to look like a different person that worked for him. And he'd apparently promised her all this stuff, money after he died. When he died, there was nothing for her. Uh, Just like the sheer, like this, the craziness of that in and of itself, instead of breaking up with the mistress, was like, stay around, just change how you look, but stay my girlfriend. And that's how we won't get caught. And I'll make this all worth your while by putting you in the will. And then he didn't. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. And apparently she told his biographer, like, after he died, oh, he also commissioned his own biography during his life. But the other one that came out, she reveals that he was forceful and he was into humiliating her Mm -hmm. uh, sexually. Mm -hmm. And speaking of, of Armand commissioning his own biography, which is so hilarious, that journalist who wrote it is in house of hammer and gives them this crazy quote right oh he says i think he was the most satanic man of the second half of the 20th century neil linden a longtime journalist and author of armand's autobiography hammer said in house of hammer in terms of corrupting the political process in terms of controlling people and making them dance to his tune There is no comparison. Armand Hammer was the embodiment of sin because he was the embodiment of ruthless ego. So Armand, I think with his first wife, has one son, Mm -hmm. Julian, and that's Armie's grandfather. Mm -hmm. And Armie's grandfather, it's described that that Armand doesn't love Julian. Mm -hmm. This is where it gets very like succession Mm -hmm. in the descriptions. Casey, who is the daughter of Julian, she says that her father could never get Armand's attention unless he resorted to, quote, really, really bad behavior, which he did in 1955. Her father, Julian, killed somebody over a gambling debt. 
Her memoir claims that the behavior includes allegedly abusing his family. She says that he abused her sexually. And he killed a man in 1955 over a gambling debt and supposed advances on his wife. Although all charges were dropped after Armand, his father, paid people off. So Armie's grandfather, who is his dad's dad and Casey's dad, because Casey is his aunt, killed someone. That straight up happened. It's not a rumor. And she says in House of Hammer... In a couple of wrenching scenes, it's very hard for her to talk about that Julian, Army's grandfather, also molested her as a kid. Yeah. Which leads us to Army's dad, who grew up with Julian also as a dad. Yeah. And his name is Michael, right? What's Michael's deal? Yeah, his name is Michael. In 1990, Armand dies. He's in his 90s. By the way... He's Jewish, and he was about to have a bar mitzvah in his 90s. In his 90s? Because he never got to have one? Yeah, you can do that. Like Grace on Will and Grace has one in her 30s. You know, he was proud of it, right? So his grandson, Michael, Army's father, was apparently at the time of his death a born-again Christian Mm. because he meets who will become Army's mother, this woman, Drew, and she is like a big Christian. So he announces at Armand's memorial service or funeral that his grandfather was a Christian before his death and denounced his Judaism. But that was at the service, and people couldn't believe it. So Armand Hammer, Army's grandfather, who was proudly Jewish, died at the age of 92. The night before he he died, right? Wasn't it like literally? It's the eve of his bar mitzvah. It was supposed to be the next day. Armand dies wow. of bone cancer. This is a belated bar mitzvah that he never got to have. And... They had the memorial service for it. Suspiciously, Michael, his grandson and Army's father, makes a weird speech about how, in fact, he was a Christian. (laughs) Incredible. And there's a palpable... There's a palpable shock. And doesn't he also... Isn't something added to the will about um, Israel and recognizing... It's so shady because... All of this like religious stuff comes out right away. But when Armand's will is announced, he gives nothing. Sorry, he he gives like the bare minimum to his son, Julian. And he gives Casey like 250,000. Again, this is supposed to be a billionaire, but he leaves everything to his grandson, Michael, Army's father. Mm -hmm. And so when he starts giving all this money or claiming to give all this money to Oral Roberts University, which is one of the Christian causes he gives money to. Yeah, is it implied in the documentary that Michael went in and changed Armand's will to be like Armand actually wanted all of this money? He wasn't Jewish. He's a born again Christian. He also wants all this money to go to these crazy Christian universities. 
Am I getting that right? Or he just said that. He just said that. He and Drew at this time are like, they're born again, like have their born again fingers all over like the will and just like the narrative about his life post-death, which is so crazy. It's so weird. They give, you know, money to Jews for Jesus. Right. And the rest of his family, like the rest of the Hammers and like the world that knew Armand were like, what the fuck? This isn't, when was he ever a Christian? And it's all coming through the mouthpiece of Michael Army's dad and Drew Army's mom, who is a real piece of fucking work as we're about to hear from you. I don't really understand her whole deal. Like, eventually they get divorced. So, Michael, the Grand Cayman Islands, you can hide money mm-hmm. there, apparently. Like, it's tax-free income or something. So, he moves his family there. They have Army. Army goes to one of these Christian schools that he starts on the island where they live. Then, eventually, they move to L.A., I feel like Army's like a young teenager. But I wanted to bring up the part about the sex throne. Mm-hmm. There's like this weird sex throne that Michael kept. It's written about in the book. It's talked about in the documentary. It's, it's apparently a seven foot tall throne with a hook and a cage underneath the seat. And then the family crest is like carved into it. Yeah. And it's just like apparently like a family sex throne. And when Casey is interviewed about growing up around her grandfather and her father, it sounds like there was a lot of drug addiction and drinking going on. Yeah. House of Hammer, they talk a lot about Casey as a little girl being privy to like these weird like sex parties that dad and grandpa were like having these like Caligulan orgies and and that Michael was a part of them and that there was drugs and that girls were really young and maybe being encouraged to do things that they didn't want to do and that Casey as a child was privy to this stuff and how upsetting it was for her. Throughout the series of House of Hammer, you have multiple women. There's a few women that are interviewed in the series. We won't go into all of them because there's too many of the women that he cheated with and sent the BDSM stuff or did the love bombing and got them obsessed with him and he was obsessed with them and they were going to move to blah, blah, blah. And they went and had a great, you know, getaway vacation in the desert and it's just them. And then he dumps them and then cut to the woman having to go to PTSD rehab to get over the experience of surviving the relationship with Army Hammer or experiencing it. This happens to one woman, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's been the experience of other women who have had this happen with Army Hammer. But Casey in this series says it, and a lot of the women who are interviewed say that Army talked repeatedly about the sexual abuse in his family, but also the sexual proclivities and oddness in his family too, including shit with his dad. And this series hints at this fucking sex throne, which sounds so crazy. You were like, you said something really funny in the text to me about them being like a boring blonde goths or like boring. Well, it's like an unfunny goth succession. <laughs> unfunny goth succession is the perfect way to describe the hammers down to Michael's sex chair with a hook in a cage. Like a these hook. people are fucking crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. 
So why did Michael and Drew divorce? Because of the sex chair? Was it? Was it because of infidelity? Because I'm just wondering if they're like this power Christian couple. They are divorced, right? Because they're still really close. I think in the series, Courtney Yusekovich, who is really like the person that tells all. They've been divorced since 2012. They were married for 27 years. Oh, that's a long time. Drew is like a total born again and obviously got Michael on board with that as well. I mean, Drew is like the classic parody of like a blonde trophy wife mom. She has a very chopped face. She's blonde and skinny and beautiful. She owns a quote home and lifestyle brand called Drewville. The Drewville shop is the Instagram handle. You know, they're filthy rich. She's from Oklahoma. And she started her own ministry called Hammered Heart Foundation, specifically to help women and children dealing with divorce and abuse, which is just an incredible thing for her to be uh, proselytizing about or have a ministry dedicated to. Um, I don't know what the state of their relationship is, but one wonders about Drew and her knowledge of things or her participation or sanctioning of things like sex thrones or just the family secrets and shame and darkness that went on. But then you also, and the reason I yeah. say sanctioning is because during these times where, and, and who knows what the, the state of the marriage was between Elizabeth Chambers and Army Hammer before they announced they were getting divorced. But as we see in House of Hammer, all of these women are detailing relationships that he had with them before this is announced that they're getting divorced, right? Yeah. He's definitely cheating with these women. And the most upsetting thing is that you see with two different women, photos of Drew of yes. meeting mom. I don't know if you see, for right. one, you see a photo and another woman says she met Drew. But these are like, yes. not. this is like a three-monther. And I'm, if I had to guess more like a six-weeker, like the second one was 22. What kind of a mo- mother or what kind of an adult woman is like, yes, I'm going to go have dinner with the new girl six weeks later who's been replaced by a new hot woman that you met on Instagram It seems really, really, really dark to me and strange to me. He seemed to know what was going on with him and okay with it. Yeah. And it makes sense if she's used to looking the other way or smiling through it or having a good Christian wife's perspective on like, well, you know how men are. Who knows what Drew's perspective is? But she certainly knew what her son was up to. As far as um, having different women with him all the time when he was allegedly married as a happy father of two totally her grandchildren and she was also like apparently making both women uncomfortable by specifically bringing up at these nice to meet you meetings army's father michael's potential abuse by his father just like always bringing it back home to like the dark family ties right Inappropriate. Inappropriate. Yeah. One of the women that is interviewed, Courtney Basuvich, is like the most striking thing about going to dinner was not only that I quickly met his mother, which is a pretty big step, right? When you're dating someone, is like meeting their family. Oh my God. And that it was really fast for them. And that then at this dinner, that she launched into like family abuse stories to her. Yeah, maybe as a fucked up way of being like, I know my son is fucked up and here's why. 
but isn't he so cute? I can yeah. definitely, I feel like I've met a version of Drew. Well, you know, yeah. it hasn't been easy for Army and it hasn't been easy for the family and I get it and marriage is really hard and I don't judge you for having an affair with my son and our family comes from a lot of dark, like I could see that being what was happening in that situation. Who knows? So a lot of this stuff, right, can be chalked up to like, okay, families are weird. People are weird. Army is kinky. Everyone has sexual hangups. Maybe he's a narcissist and that's why he, duh, actors, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know. But there was one thing in House of Hammer that really made the the hair stand up on the back of your neck, right? Like when Courtney is talking about when they were in the courting phase and they're like bonding over shared traumas and difficult family relationships. And before they had ever met in person, this is all happening over text, their relationship. Yusekovich says Hammer showed up at her apartment in Dallas, Texas, when he knew that she wasn't going to be in town. She was in New York at the time. And he shows up there and sends her a photo of her apartment building. Like he's just creeping in the parking lot. This comes after he calls her 22 times in a row. And she writes to him, leave why are you there? And he says, I'm trying to find your scent. (laughs) So just when you think it's all fun and games, he's trying to find your scent. He also leaves her a note in her mailbox at the apartment complex that says, I want to bite you. And he called her 22 times. Like, this isn't like, hey, babe, I'm in town shooting something. Look where I am. Left you a message in your mailbox. Wink, wink. It's not that. And that's what's important to remember in our discussion of him. Calling someone 22 times, unless you've determined with them, please call me 22 times. I'm really turned on by that. It's not that. Right. They're very careful in episode three of three hours of House of Hammer to introduce an expert on BDSM and sexual health who is saying this is not what BDSM is, which is about consent, which is about trust. Okay, so so let's talk about cannibalism a little bit. We'll define the fetish, which is vorophilia, and it is considered an imaginary fetish. So it wouldn't be a fetish to actually go through with the cannibalism. Arousal occurs from the idea of being eaten or eating another person or watching this process. Wikifer says that the fantasy may include digestion, painless or otherwise. I can't even imagine what that refers to. Hmm. But as you can imagine, after Army's texts were revealed, mm-hmm. GQ put out yeah. an article. It's called, Just How Common Is a Cannibalism Fetish Anyway? The author of the piece talks at length with Dr. Victoria Hartman, who wrote a book called I Love Dead People, Inside the Minds of Death Fetishists. So Dr. Victoria Hartman says, Only about half a percent of the people I studied had actually acted out this fetish. Most of it was within the realm of their fantasy, and if not, it was most often negotiated within a consensual BDSM setting. 
Dr. Hartman's research has found that most people who discovered vorophilia tendencies did so between the ages of 8 and 13, and almost all were horrified by it. She said that many acted out and carried a lot of personal shame, and that she found that the overwhelming number of them didn't have any actual desire to hurt anyone, which they all went out of their way to make clear. They also didn't have a desire to act out anything with an unwilling partner. Very important to say that. Mm -hmm. Hartman made a clear distinction between people who are enjoying over-the-top porn and consensual BDSM play Mm -hmm. with, quote, those who would actually intend to harm. Oftentimes, people who enact actual violence have a cluster B disorder or some other kind of personality disorder where they inherently lack empathy. The latter type would likely have a violent paraphilia and a lack of empathy for others, as opposed to people who are just into fantasy. Pure fetishists, quote, are way more eager to seek out consenting partners in a pre-negotiated setting Mm -hmm. than they are to actually harm anyone. Mm -hmm. The problem is that Army reportedly did not get consent when he tied women up in complicated ropes or carved his initials into their bodies Um, which he's accused of doing, at least with two different people, without their consent. Right. And then his lawyer, people have been talking about, like, as a defense, something called, like, consensual non-consent play, which is just like, great, there's a lawyer comeback for everything, Mm -hmm. you know? Anyway, that GQ piece is written by Sophia Benoit, who's really funny on Twitter and whose handle for the purposes of the show is one follower, no dad. But yeah, the emphasis of Victoria Hartman saying they don't act out anything with an unwilling partner. And that's echoed in House of Hammer, too. There's a BDSM like therapist or sex therapist interviewed who's like the you know the number one thing that sticks out is a huge red flashing warning sign with this is that he's was preying on just you know cute girls on Instagram and praying is the appropriate word because he was introducing these violent (laughs) BDSM and shibori sort of fetishes to people that were not only not versed in those worlds, but not willing to be a part of them and afraid and seemingly getting off on how scared he made people, which is part of House of Ethics allegations as well, or part of those texts that he talks about towering over her and being so turned on by how scared she was of him. Well, let's just talk about Dahmer a little bit because it's apparently like the 30th-ish anniversary of him confessing Jeffrey Dahmer to cannibalistic acts and murdering 17 men or boys, most of them queer and of color, Mm -hmm. mostly black, African-American, Latino, Eastern Asian. Yeah, it's tough. I'm watching Dahmer right now on Netflix and it's devastating. That's the Ryan Murphy one, right? The Ryan Murphy one with What's-His-Face, Evan Peters. You know, it's very much a tell me about your father's show because his father's presence and lack of presence is a big through line throughout the show. Mm-hmm. 
he is like the classic distracted boomer dad and Jeffrey Dahmer's father towards the end of the series in real life he did write a book about Jeffrey and sort of a like how did this happen yeah it's Um, called a father's story a father's story but essentially where he admits I think in the book but then this is also on the show who knows if it actually happened but there's a very sad scene between Lionel Dahmer played by Richard Jenkins and Jeffrey Dahmer where Richard Jenkins is like this is my fault I neglected you so badly and I should have gotten you help way sooner the signs were really obvious so um tell us about how what Army Hammer and Jeffrey Dahmer besides the obvious cannibal fetish one was a real cannibal one we don't know question mark with army hammer (laughs) (laughs) um what is what do you have to tell us about Dahmer? so i just looked into the backgrounds of shia army and jeffrey Dahmer. one of the interesting things is Dahmer's mother was an alcoholic by all Mm -hmm. accounts and he was an alcoholic started drinking at a very young age and reportedly was never sober whenever he committed crimes, mm-hmm. sometimes even blacking out mm-hmm. in one case, killing somebody and having no memory of it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And there's alcoholism in the Hammer family and addiction. Mm-hmm. And there's mm-hmm. alcoholism in Shia's family and addiction. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's not to say that all alcoholics who hit their girlfriends and lie about having herpes and are maudlin egocentric frozen children are also serial killers um not at all however i think that what you hear over and over again in recovery or at least when people are going through recovery or experience the shock of being in a relationship with an addict or having someone turn on a dime, or Mm -hmm. someone who has a personality disorder, like bipolar, any of those things, you know, I think the question comes forward a lot, which is what are you capable of? What are you capable of when you are drunk? What are you capable of when you are raging? Are you capable of punching a hole in a wall? Are you capable of punching your girlfriend or your child? Or are you capable of killing someone? And it's right. it's all sort of, I think, on a spectrum. I think it's all interconnected. And Jeffrey Dahmer just, I think, had more cluster Bs. Maybe it's just the personality disorder is so severe in him that that's what that is. But then there's also the need to control. The simmering anger and rage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um So in the need to control for Shia by what we can see is his need to control women in his relationships with them. Like he talks about being so jealous. And that's why the first time he and Mia broke up after the first wedding Mm -hmm. in 2018, when it broke up, it was over. He says his jealousy. Right. He was convinced she was cheating with a coworker. Yeah, his obsession. And it's not just... I think his responses in the Real Ones podcast about his obsession with women and defining himself by the relationships that he was in is not that control isn't born out of like an evil need to hurt or to hit. 
it's out of the need to say, stay, don't leave, don't abandon me. You're going to stay here and I'll do whatever it takes. If it means beating you up in a gas station, I'll do it because I'm so afraid of who I am if I'm not in a relationship with you. I don't love myself enough to be not, you know, defining myself through a relationship with you or any woman, as he says. Absolutely. And Dahmer, that's why he says he ate his victims because he wanted part of them inside him. Mm -hmm. That way he could live with the memory. That way they would never leave him. Mm -hmm. It's an extreme version, but I see them as connected. And with Army, you know, it's that same thing. Like, I'm going to cut your toe off and your toe belongs to me. Hmm. I always have your toe. I always have, I always have a piece of you with me. And if I don't have a piece of you, I'm I have such control over your body down to telling you, you know, when you can shit and eat and whatever those messages were that he sent to someone. I don't know if we've referenced them, but there's one where it's like, I tell you when to shit, eat and come or something. Yeah, I think that's also what we're talking about. The the utter need to control. It's, I think, firmly rooted. And who am I if I am not ensconced in a relationship or acting out through sex? Like all of it is a way, I think, to fill a hole. And I feel like listening to Shia and maybe I'm projecting because it's more familiar because I was raised by a self-hating alcoholic that just loved Christmas (laughs) and looking at all of the people he'd helped so much. He loved that shit. My dad had a huge heart and and loved volunteering and homeless outreach. But I think that it filled some ego, some, Mm -hmm. I don't know, void in him. And I don't know what it fills. I don't get scared little boy from army. I don't get no. wounded. I get nothing where the hole is. Exactly. I nothing. <laughs> Just like with Dahmer, actually, mm-hmm. who seems to have even more of a sensitivity chip than army because he gave himself up he told all he had some semblance of empathy for his victims in that he needed them to not be awake with army whose favorite late night talk show anecdote seemed to be a few years ago talking about picking a fight with a homeless person while on vacation, he just like what? immediately got in their face. There's some stuff in his background that's interesting if you read the book, but just like dumb anecdotes. You know, he was a high rich school boy. rich boy getting in trouble and rich boy also being like, isn't it funny to mess with homeless people? Right. That's the kind of psycho shit that I get from him. A little bit, because then Mm -hmm. on talk shows, he would tell this story about like how he was crazy enough to pick a fight with a crazy person. (laughs) And that his wife, Elizabeth, said, you're missing a chip in your frontal lobe Mm -hmm. because the frontal lobe is the part of the brain where you have portion control, so to speak, and you're not. Mm-hmm. You're not like flying off the handle and risk averse. He's not risk averse, mm-hmm. but he's so quiet. And the fact that 
Shia and Army are both actors is not lost on us. They're professional liars. They're professional shapeshifters. Mm -hmm. They are people whose lines are written for them. So Mm -hmm. they have their script. So it's that scary thing. Like, whoa, they're going off script. Yeah. I mean, Army has been quiet, I'm assuming, because there's a, you know, there are rape allegations that are, are they, were they resolved? They were dropped or? The LAPD said that they gave it their best shot for nine months. Okay. And, sure. you know, yeah. At this point, you know, I hope that Army Hammer is, I know he's listening to this episode. Obviously. I know. I know he is um, too. But I hope that he takes a page out of the playbook of I don't even know who we're trying to think of celebrities that have actually gone away for the appropriate amount of time and then sort of made a living amends to use recovery speak like to just dedicate the rest of their lives to being different and shutting up I can't think of a lot of examples of actors that have done this Um, I'm sure that there there are I'm sure they exist Maybe. I don't know. Maybe Brad Pitt, question mark. But we don't know. It's too soon sort of with him. But anyways, ARMY, the only thing we know about ARMY since all of this happened, and and he has mercifully not done any press. However, one wonders if he is getting ready to think he can come back because there's all of these stories that have come out about that he's, you know, working with Elizabeth Chambers, his soon-to-be, or no, his ex-wife. They're divorced, right? Or they're getting divorced. Yeah, they're getting divorced. They've been separated since 2020. Yeah, so that that they're, that they're working to co-parent and that he's doing better. And this is alluded to in House of Hammer that clearly some publicist like right out of the gates is, you know, talking about putting out stories that like he's happier than ever. This is weeks after the cannibalism stuff, like dating a dental hygienist that's keeping him honest, you know, like he's, he's not doing drugs anymore and look how great he looks. And so that's, that died down. And then this summer, it was revealed by a Jesus and Miro RIP uh, producer that her <laughs> parents had been on vacation in the Cayman Islands. She tweeted a photo. It looked like photoshopped. It was like for like a Cayman Islands like rental community. And your concierge or your sort of like host in this rental facility was, quote, Army and his phone number. And it was a picture of Army Hammer that looked like it was off Google image search. Like it looked really fake, but it was real. And paparazzi got photos of him walking around in what seemed to be a uniform. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, good. He's actually in a program. He's clearly in recovery and someone to break through to the person that used to tell hilarious anecdotes about picking fights with homeless people said go get a job to experience the ego death that Shia claims to have experienced I thought that's what was happening and you know his lawyers mishandled I felt the whole thing by denying it even though it was Mm -hmm. true obviously we know that he's living in Robert Downey Jr.'s one of his houses that Robert Downey Jr. It's been revealed as helping him, right, to recover. He has a long history of fucking up and famously crawled into a child's bed at someone's house in Malibu when he was trying to get oh, home to his bed, Robert mm-hmm. Johnny Jr. 
So we don't know that he's gunning to make a comeback in the way that I think Shia probably is. You know, Shia has a movie coming out or that he's starting with Francis Ford Coppola. Shia's craft is starting to come back, I think, more and more. I think we'll see him doing more and more acting. Army, I, we don't know. Where is Army now? You may be asking what he's doing. What's he not doing, hopefully? He subsequently left a bunch of films and TV projects, including Shotgun Wedding, The J-Lo Thing, yeah. The Offer, Gaslit, Next Goal Wins, and a play called The Minutes. His last credit was for Death on the Nile. You know, we remember they tried to, like, remove him from the poster. It was a non-starter. Mm-hmm. One interesting thing is that Call Me By Your Name director, Luca Guadino, says his new cannibalism-themed movie called Bones and All, also starring Timothy Chalamet, has, quote, nothing to do with the Army Hammer allegations. Mm. I mean, the mm. timing of all these things is hilarious. Let me just quickly talk about Elizabeth Chambers. She's from San Antonio. She owns a bakery called Bird Bakery. She's very beautiful. They've been married for a while. I think they were, they got together when they were pretty young. It's come out recently, and we thought this was interesting because CNN broke the story that unheard of for gossip. Yeah, they're not gossip breakers. Um, right. It means they have been told directly from the source. If People Magazine or CNN is reporting about something, it's true, 100%. The headline is, Army Hammer's ex-Elizabeth Chambers allegedly used a friend's email to communicate with journalists amid their relationship fallout. So she was actually in this article... The CNN article, she says that a lot of, you know, some of like the House of Effie stuff that was leaked, some of the other stuff that came out from anonymous sources around this time, because it was story after story. And as we talked about clip after clip of him drunk or like the woman Mm -hmm. on his bed or whatever, that they were actually, according to the CNN story, that Elizabeth Chambers either sent them directly to reporters or helped, helped facilitate that. To which I say good for her. And I understand why she did it because she probably was so angry and wanted the world to know the truth and needed the world to know the truth so that she could live in reality. Like imagine being with him and having, I'm assuming he was denying this fervently to her or you know, suiting up with a legal team or a, a PR team. And she was thinking, I have to get this out there so that people actually understand. And I also imagine that that must have been really hard for her as a mother because her kids will see this stuff one day. And that's not her fault. It's his fault. And I get I get why she did it. She's definitely trying to like position herself as like a lifestyle influencer, kind of, I think, more so now than before. I think she was doing that before he got in trouble. And now she's kind of beating that drum again she did a huge sit-down interview with e news recently and surprising she is described in that interview as a culinary entrepreneur and tv host it's like what she is okay but she what was interesting is that she said she did watch house of hammer the quote is i didn't plan on seeing it but i dropped my kids off from school one day and i came home and i watched it with my quote support system around me meaning her besties Mm -hmm. or a therapist i'm assuming 
said it was obviously heartbreaking on so many levels and very painful, but at the same time, it exists. The past is the past, and all we can do is take this as a moment to learn and listen and hopefully process and heal in every capacity. It's surprising that, I mean, talk about, I don't know, shutting up or or letting it all air out. I mean, right. these are extremes. Like we've gone from we don't talk about Jeff Epstein to my ex or soon to be ex-husband and the father of my children might be a cannibal. Yeah. Yeah. And talking about and, and addressing watching the show about, you know, sex thrones with fucking hooks attached to them that her father-in-law owned allegedly. But they have so much fucking money. That's what I was going to ask you. That she's like, I have to create a life for myself that's separate from him. And I have to be a culinary entrepreneur and TV fucking host. And I'm going to go build my own career because I can't rely on his acting in career anymore because it doesn't exist. And hopefully it won't exist for a long time. And maybe she doesn't want the hammer money, you know, to rely on. Who knows? It's fascinating. It's not Camille Cosby's approach. No. But I respect it so much more because she's not saying, I don't believe it. Exactly. Exactly. That's what we want. We want people to acknowledge that that it is happening. Absolutely. One more thing that I thought was interesting. I don't know if you've been on TikTok recently, but there was something that went viral, perhaps inspired by all this Dahmer stuff. But somebody on TikTok basically made a huge list of serial killers. Mm -hmm. And the star signs, the astrological signs that they are most often. Mm -hmm. So serial killers are most often these four astrological signs, okay? Gemini, uh, Virgo, Sagittarius and Pisces. Mm. All right. Mm-hmm. So I went and I looked up all like our cast of characters. Army Hammer, wouldn't you know it? Virgo. Mm, that makes sense. Armand Hammer, Gemini. Mm-hmm. Army's dad, Michael, Virgo. Mm. Shia LaBeouf, Gemini. Jeffrey Dahmer, Gemini. I. I'm a Sagittarius. My dad was a Virgo. Your dad was a fucking Gemini. What Dude, is happening? It's the the twins, right? The dark and the yeah. light, the, the duplicitous, the two sides. Right. Um, and then Virgos are freaks. Virgos are control freaks from hell. Control so that makes sense. Freaks. Yeah. Yes. Apparently mm-hmm. these four signs, these are the mutable signs. These are the signs that can shape shift. I mean, I get it. I do that. You're a Scorpio. The joke about this poll was like, wait a second. Why isn't Scorpio on here? Right. I thought Scorpios were supposed to be the ones with sex thrones. It's a total sex throne sign. But you know what? Scorpio, Scorpions. (laughs) Scorpios are very sensitive. Maybe they're too sensey to be serial killers. All right. Summation. Let's take us home. Okay. So I have this quote. From House of Hammer, the artist Julia Morrison, who's the young photographer or model Mm -hmm. creator person. 
she never meets Army in person. She actually catches wind that all of this is happening while she's corresponding with him mm-hmm. and doesn't seem as vulnerable to his charms, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But what yeah, she says she in House of Hammer, which I thought was so right on, was she's talking about as we are, what do we do with these men? Like, what are they supposed to do now that they can't make a living? Are they supposed to go away? Can they ever act again? And she said, you know, everybody is focusing on cancel culture and how bad that is and what that means. But why don't we talk about rape culture, mm-hmm. which is how we got here in the first place? Mm-hmm. And that's what really what it's about. Like, at least now we're putting the focus on how to stop this, how to see it coming, how to protect yourself if there's a Shia or an army in your life or in your family, or Mm -hmm. frankly, like if you are growing up, you know, the grandson of an Armand. I was thinking, what if Shia and army just like go back to work after all this and they're working on film sets? Can you imagine like having to film a love scene with Army Hammer or a fight scene with Shia LaBeouf. No, I can't. Yeah, I can't. And that's a really good point. And it goes back to that quote you read from the Nickelodeon executive turned therapist. This is about the industry making a decision about making more money off of these people and whether they're doing that at the expense of the the actors and actresses that they're working with is a question mark. And you said something when we were planning this show that really stuck with me, which is everyone deserves to heal. Everyone deserves to recover, even Army Hammer. But not everyone deserves to be a movie star. Not everyone deserves to keep their wild success in their career and he has a hard road ahead of him as as does Shia not in the sense of they won't have a career because we always say on this show that cancel culture doesn't exist like Mm -hmm. army hammer will eventually figure out a way how to make money again maybe not the money he was making before but he will and yet he will, for the rest of his life, have people want to ask him about this. And he'll have to Mm -hmm. tell reporters that he's not going to answer questions about this. And he'll be a punchline. Mm -hmm. And and I don't feel sorry for him. I don't. And I think if he's really in recovery, he probably would say that he doesn't feel sorry for himself either and that he's prepared to accept that. But who knows if Robert Downey Jr. is going to get through to him. But I think also it's tempting to judge Robert Downey Jr. in this too and be like, why, why are you, why are you doing this? And for what purpose? And, you know, talking about rape culture and cancel culture not being real, I think there's a version of this where an argument towards not letting Shia LaBeouf make a fucking Francis Ford Coppola movie next. And he's famously apologized for and protected a director who's been accused of pedophilia and done jail time. Yes. Many times has said things about that, you know, me choose choose dividing us, you know, but there's a version of this, which is the harm that comes with letting people return to work unscathed 
and capitalism. If we're going to tie it back to Army and Shia too, it's like you can grow up with nothing on food stamps and become a stand-up comedian, or you can come from generations of communist oil hellhole sex throne wealth. Um, <laughs> for whatever reason, culturally, we cannot yeah. allow men, no matter how dangerous they are, to not make a living. Right? That's we, right. And I just said multiple times throughout this fucking show that I do feel sympathy for Shia LaBeouf. I can't help it. But yeah, I think culturally, there's way more of a rush to be like, oh, come on. Let this dad get back to work. Let this guy like have a second shot. And I think yeah. when it comes to Hollywood, it's way easier for that to happen because, as you pointed out to me, there's a machine that they support who are relying on these people, the yep. Shias and armies. And Shia says in it that he, you know, this was hard for him. Their agents, their directors, they're all making money off of them. Publicists, lawyers, Publicists, lawyers, lawyers number one. You know, there's a whole ecosystem who, you know, make money off of these people returning to work. Mm -hmm. That also, though, goes back to culturally. We can't let men not not make a living, well, and it and it sets the tone for the rest of the world. It does, right? Like in Leave No Trace, the Boy Scouts documentary that exposes at least eighty three thousand complaints on the record that the Boy Scouts knew about going back a hundred years, and that's just the ones who have made a formal complaint since like the early. 20th century. And it was always, well, okay, we knew, but you cannot take away a man and a father's ability to support their families. And so these were scout leader rapists who were being paid handsomely to rape children systematically. I'm sorry, to rape boys who yeah. are about to become men, yeah. teaching them that this is how the world works. Yeah. Meanwhile, we have legions of victims all over the place. And I include regular addicts who happen to be female, like Lindsay Lowen or Drew Barrymore, even mm -hmm. going back in the day. Like, People who come from horrible broken homes mm -hmm. and legacy cannibalism, so to speak, mm -hmm. who do not act out against others violently. Yeah. And yeah. that's what we have to accept, that pathology is a soup. Psychology is a soup. It's all a spectrum. You might have a gentle affect like mm -hmm. Jeffrey Dahmer, or you might be like bleeding out like Shia LaBeouf. But both of those people are not to be put on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was a doozy. Um, we'll be back with a very spooky episode. In, hopefully. We'll hopefully. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bye. Tell Me About Your Father and Daddy Issues are created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. Oh, and Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think.